Hello and welcome to Landings with a Flare, the podcast where we supplement and support flight training. This is Captain Teresa. This episode will be a pilot ground school lesson in the format of a guided discussion. This conversation was recorded on the audio platform called Clubhouse. You will likely hear some variation in audio quality as speakers tune in from around the world. Many of our ground school lessons include handouts, which you can find along with other resources in the podcast show notes. They are also on our website, landingswithaflare.com. We hope you sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Welcome aboard. Welcome back. We are going to talk about global wins. This is going to build on the conversation about the foundations of meteorology. We're going to start talking about the Earth as if it doesn't rotate, and then we're going to bring that rotation back in and talk about how this three-dimensional picture of winds is built and even how it influenced history and a lot of how travel used to happen in ships on the ocean. We already spoke a little bit about this, but let's do some review. We know that warm air rises and cold air sinks. So at the North Pole is, and the South Pole, is the air rising or sinking? Sinking. Yes, because cold air sinks and it's cold. And then at the equator, then would the air be rising or sinking? Beautifully rising. Yes. So the air is rising at the equator and it's sinking at the poles, if the earth was not rotating and there wasn't friction, then that would mean that there was a high pressure at the poles and the air would flow straight from the poles to the equator. It would rise up. There would be what we call a return flow because of convection. And then it would sink again at the poles and there would be this nice big convection loop. That is the theory of how it would work if there was no friction and if the Earth wasn't rotating. I have a picture of that on the top of page six on the handout. So by that picture, I wrote the word theory because that is just theoretical. Okay, now the picture below that says reality. And the reality is that the air doesn't have enough force to travel all the way from the poles all the way to the equator. The flow actually breaks up and it breaks into three different convective cells on each side of the earth between the poles and the equator. And they do mirror each other. We'll start by talking about the equator. The air rises at the equator and there's this sort of return flow as it's trying to go toward the poles. But it just basically just runs out of energy and it can't go that far before it starts to cool off and it sinks again. And so that sinking motion creates a high pressure area roughly about 30 degrees north or south of the equator on both sides. And then there's a return flow back to the equator again. That cell actually has a name and that's called the Hadley cell or the Hadley cells. So there are bands of air around the equator on each side where it's kind of rising up and then sinking and then flowing back. 
And then a similar thing is happening at both the North and the South Pole. The air is sinking at the pole and it starts trying to flow toward the equator, but it just basically runs out of energy and it gets some heating as it goes. So it rises again and there becomes this smaller convective cell, which is usually in about the top 30 degrees or so of latitude. So if the poles are about 90 degrees of latitude, the air roar less flows down to about 60 degrees of latitude, rises again, and then sinks again. And that is called the polar cell, P-O-L-A-R. Now, because there are these two bands of air on each side of the Earth between the pole and the equator, there's this middle area that then has this reactive flow, and it creates its own convective cell of air that's reacting to the other two sets of convection that are moving around it. So the middle one is called the feral cell, F-E-R-R-E-L. And I believe that's named after a famous person. I think the Hadley cell is also named after a famous person. So you've got these three bands north of the equator and three bands south of the equator, and they're mirroring each other and more or less doing the same thing. The pictures of these are on the bottom of page six and the top of page seven. So then you run into another issue. When you have warm and cold air meeting and different air flows meeting, there can be a lot of disruption. It can be somewhat violent and it can cause very interesting phenomenons in meteorology. So at the top where the feral cell and the Hadley cell meet and where the air conflicts, that warm and the cold air kind of all meeting. Oh, it's not really warm and cold air necessarily, but it's more, it's different directions of air meeting. You get something called a jet stream. That one's called the subtropical jet. And then there's another one between the other cells, the polar cell and the feral cell called the polar jet. Does anyone want to explain what a jet stream is? Gab? I believe it's some air moving at or above 60 knots or something around that. Yeah, it's definitely at a fast rate. Destiny J, I think you were just a split second behind him. Do you have more to add? Yeah, um, and you already heard this before, but how I always think of it as, has anyone ever watched Finding Nemo? And do you guys remember the part with the turtles, with the jet, with the um, water flowing? Well, just think of it as air. So when you're usually pilots um, at high altitudes like that will use jet streams as a push so that they can go a lot faster so they won't have to use a lot of fuel. So just think of it as that stream of water flowing extremely fast, but in the sky and air. That is my favorite comment of the entire day, Dustin J. I love how you brought up that great visualization. Yeah, Z, did you have something to add? Yeah, just a kind of the same thing that was beautiful. And it's, it's like, a, like almost like a river in the air that you can dip in or dip out of, maybe. It's constantly moving. Yes, exactly. And Dusty J, I love the example of the movie Finding Nemo. For those of you who have seen that movie, there was a part with the turtles toward the end where they were getting in a really strong ocean current and then they were able to go faster because they were in a strong ocean current. That is what some planes can do in the jet stream. It's a really strong 
current of air or a stream of air, like Z said, almost like a river of strong wind flowing. And if you have the right jet, you can get up and get the benefits of the tailwind if you plan out where it is. I love that. I think the jet stream is a very fascinating thing. It can be a little bit difficult to predict, but we can look at different wind speeds at different altitudes. Even if you don't have a fast enough or big enough jet to get into the jet stream, you can do some planning for your flight also, just looking at where the high and low pressures are. If you know that it's flowing from the high to the low and you know how it's twisting, in theory, you could plan a flight to get better tailwinds that way also. Okay, is there anything else we need to say about the jet stream? It can get very fast. I think it can get at least 200 knots. Enrique? From what I remember, to be considered a, a jet stream, the, the minimum wind speed should be 50 knots. And you can work with increments over that by the number of flags when you're looking at a, a CWX chart. Oh, interesting. I honestly have not memorized the limitation for the low end of that, but I'm guessing that you have. So as a ground instructor, we are going to say that that is the correct answer unless someone argues it. Yeah. And pretty much because of jet streams, especially on the North Atlantic, that's why you have some news that they say that, oh, this plane went from New York to London and did they flow um, supersonic? And pretty much that's because of the jet stream. They have that push from the jet stream where they were clocking on ground speed over the supersonic speed in, in metric should be around 1,200 kilometers per hour. But their aerodynamic speed was within limitations. So pretty much working at something around Mach 0.8, Mach 0.85, depending on your aircraft. Wow, that is neat. It is so fascinating when you start getting into how you can use meteorology to your benefit as you are flying. Now that we have talked about these big bands of air moving around the Earth, again, they mirror each other on each side of the equator. And of course, it all changes depending on the seasons. The jet streams move up and down as the seasons change and that kind of thing. But in general, you know, we're still speaking in very general terms. Let's revisit those airflows and talk about the direction of wind on the surface. So before we were looking at vertical airflows in the convective cells, and now let's look at horizontal flows. Let's take a survey to figure out where the prevailing winds are in each part of the world for someone who's here. Who would like to volunteer to say what the main direction of wind is in your part of the world? Unmesh, Captain Unmesh. Great to see you, by the way. Hey, Teresa. I hope you all are doing great. I'll just give you a basic idea of what we face out here in India is the primary wind direction is uh, traveling from the west, uh, west coast to the east coast. However, uh, during the monsoon seasons or later summer months, we have winds that travel. The subtropical comes down south and we get winds from east to west going down southwards. 
So that's what made one of our carriers longest flight from New Delhi to San Francisco. They used to go on the western heading first, but then they changed the route and they changed it to a easterly heading, saving off about an hour and a half of flight time. And on a triple seven, that's a lot of fuel saved. Wow. Okay, so there are people who say that the wind is mostly coming from the west in their part of the world. But then, as Captain Unmush said, it could be seasonal. I believe I saw Destiny J flash her microphone next. And then after that, we will go to Z. Well, here in America, I believe it's east to west. Uh, so let's see, you're in roughly what state are you in or what part of the country? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I knew that, but I was asking you to say it for the recording. (laughs) So I'm in Michigan. I'm west of you. Am I going to get your weather first or are you going to get your weather before I do? Oh, it's west to east. You're going to get my weather before I get my weather. Yes, that is true. Z, did you have something to add? Just that same thing. And this is fun. (laughs) And, and yeah, and also. Yeah, that made a lot of sense. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. Thanks. My pleasure. I love that. And Sandin, I believe I saw you flash your microphone. Yeah, the same in Sri Lanka. So as the Captain Anmash said, there are two main monsoons. Like in the beginning of the year, it is the winds are blowing from northeast to southwest. But at the later part of the year, the winds are blowing from uh, southeast to northwest. So there are two different winds. Thank you for saying that. That is a really fascinating situation or case because it does show how things change with seasons and it shows how different parts of the world are different. Okay, so a lot of people here said that where they live, the winds move from the west to the east. But let's say that you were going to take an airplane and you were going to fly near the equator, maybe not right over the equator but you were going to fly near the equator, and we'll talk about that more. And you want to set a world record for going around the world as fast as possible. So you need a tailwind. When you're just slightly above the equator, which direction would the wind be going and which direction should you fly? Captain Unmesh. Could you just say the question once again? Yeah, please. Okay. You want to fly near the equator. You're just slightly above it or below it. And you want to set a world record for flying around the world as fast as possible. So you need a tailwind. Which direction should you fly? East to west. Yes. So at the equator, the strongest tailwinds are actually going to be east to west. Let's talk about that. And then also at the poles as well. If you wanted to fly around the world like at the north or the south pole and you were doing a really small circle then you're going to have prevailing east winds there and not west winds when people live in an area where the wind comes from the west they tend to think oh well that must just be that way everywhere in the world but it's not there are different bands of wind going in different directions in different parts of the world so i would like to turn your attention to page 8 And I wasn't going to say this, but I spent several hours on this last night creating a new graphic, so I hope you appreciate it. Let's revisit again. We talked about how you have those three different cells on each side of the Earth, each hemisphere, but now we're going to look at the horizontal winds. So the graphic on the bottom of page eight 
is confusing, but we are going to take it slowly, one step at a time. Start by just looking at the lines that are black that represent the earth. So we have the earth, and then there's a line through the middle that represents the equator. And then as you go up, there's a line that would be 30 degrees north or south. And then there's one for 60 degrees north and another for 60 degrees south. And then the poles are at 90 degrees. And you can see all of those marked. Just look at the black right now, just so that we all know where the different lines of latitude are. So then let's review again where the pressure is. So again, I know we've said this several times, but what band of pressure is along the equator again? Low pressure. Yeah, Z, low pressure. And then what type of pressure is at the poles? High pressures. Yeah. So look at what I drew on that diagram. You've got a line of low pressure at the equator, and I put a bunch of L's all across it. And those are kind of in like a reddish, orangish color. And those L's represent bands of low pressure. At the pole, I have a high pressure. And then we already talked about why there are also two intermediate other bands of pressure. So again, at zero degrees latitude, it's going to be a band of low. About 30 degrees latitude north and south, it's going to be a band of high. At 60 degrees north and south, it's going to be a band of lows. And then at the poles, it's going to be a high pressure again. So you see how it goes low, high, low, high. Then we need to talk about the airflow around those. What direction does the air flow around the high pressure area at the North Pole? Destiny J. Isn't it the upwards, downward? in clockwise? Yeah. So in the Northern Hemisphere, it's moving clockwise. And then in the Southern Hemisphere, of course, it's moving counterclockwise or anticlockwise, depending on what you call it based on your culture. So imagine all of the airflows around all of the H's that I put in that diagram. I put a clockwise flow in the Northern Hemisphere and the reverse in the Southern Hemisphere. Now around the lows, I did the opposite, those orangish arrows moving counterclockwise. And you start to see a pattern. Look at all of the lows around the equator, how they're moving counterclockwise. And toward the top of that, you'll see where it meets the air that was moving in the other direction from the high band right around that. Do you see where the band of highs pushing the air below it meets the band of lows pushing the air above it, and they all end up going in the same direction. Does everyone see that? So the air rotating around the high meets the air from the low, and it ends up all going together in the same direction. And that creates a strong wind. The one right between the low and the high, just above the equator and below it, is called a trade wind. You can have the northeast trade winds and the southeast trade winds, depending on what side of the equator you're on. And it's because all of the air meets up from the highs and the lows and ends up joining together in the same direction. But then the opposite of that happens as you go up where the next bands of air meet. If you go above the high pressure areas, let's say at 30 degrees north, but you're still below the low pressure at 60 degrees north, now all the air is rotating in the reverse direction but it's still meeting up between the lows and the highs 
and joining together to create a really strong unified wind that is going in the other direction, in this case, west to east. Have I lost anyone yet? I know that's really confusing. Does anyone have questions or clarifications? Oh, I was lost a long time ago. <laughs> oh, no. Well, they're <laughs> honest. I'm joking. I, I'm hanging in there. Um, I'd like to see this model like moving somehow that we could stand in front of it and watch it moving these different uh, circulation cells. But um, your handout is terrific. So I'm definitely hanging in there. I can't think of a question. Thank you, Z. So the good news is that there are several good YouTube videos on this. Enrique, did I see that you had a comment? Yeah, so pretty much I live at almost 23 degrees south. So I live really close to that transition point of 30 degrees south. And mainly here, um, that's correct, uh, prevailing it's southeast winds. But sometimes it gets really confusing. So sometimes I get uh, northern winds, southern winds, and things can get pretty confusing now um, where I live here. Wow, that is really neat. So depending on where you are in the world, these big bands of prevailing winds have a huge impact on your weather. And in the United States, it's mostly just moving from the west to the east. And then it's kind of like a battleground during the winter and the summer where in the winter we have more cold air masses trying to come down and in the summer the warm air masses are trying to rise up. But in other parts of the world, it can go to either extreme. Sometimes the wind is and the weather is really predictable. And other times, like Enrique in Brazil, it can change a lot and be very unpredictable. So just to kind of do a bit of a review, let's start at the North Pole and work our way down. At the North Pole, there's a high pressure area, which makes the air turn clockwise. And that means that you have easterly winds. The winds are flowing mostly east to west. Those are usually called the polar easterlies. Then as you go down, you've got low pressure areas moving counterclockwise. And below that, it creates a prevailing westerly wind called the prevailing westerlies. By the way, I should have asked this before, but how do we name winds? What are winds named after usually? Or let me put it this way. Are winds named after the origin or their destination? Destiny J. I believe the origin. Yeah. So when we are saying that it's a polar easterly, that means it's coming from the east. And when we say it's a prevailing westerly, that means it originated in the west. And then as we keep going down in these bands across the earth, as we get closer to the equator, we get something called the northeast trade winds. And that is where you would fly if you were trying to set a world record flying around the middle of the earth. You would try to get those strong tailwinds from the northeast trade winds. Then the wind is actually pretty calm right at the equator. And then as you go below it, you get the similar thing. Now you get winds moving east to west, and that's the southeast trade winds. And then below that, you get the prevailing westerlies again, or some people just call those the westerlies. And then as you go really low, you get something called the polar easterlies. So there are these bands of wind flowing around the earth. Let's talk about how that affected history. This is no longer a meteorology lesson. We just turned this into a history lesson. 
but I think it helps us remember. Does anyone want to talk about how this might have affected ships and trade in early history, especially in the parts of the world where there were a lot of trade routes done by ships? Enrique? I know that at some point, both Colombo and, and Pedro Alvarez Cabral, they missed their routes and ended up here in America. Yeah. So we say that Columbus sailed from Spain roughly down to the Caribbean. Did you ever think about why he didn't just sail straight across? I mean, the Caribbean is kind of lower in latitude than Spain. But if you look at the pictures of the winds, now look at right above the image I created to the image right above it on page eight. That one's from the FAA. You see how it's not just straight winds. They're all kind of turning. Look at the red arrows on that picture called the revisited picture. And you see how the winds are kind of flowing down and from the east to the west as they come from the Spain area down to the Caribbean. That's essentially the route that Columbus took. And then he would have to sail up farther north to get better winds pushing him back to Europe again. So follow those red arrows there. And then what you find is the history of how we had various trade triangles. It's unfortunately a very sad part of history because it involved slavery. But a lot of times people would sail from Europe to Africa, then they would sail to what they called the New World, the Americas, South and North America, and then they would essentially sail up north and then back to Europe again. And they were following all of these winds that we've been studying. There's so much history involved with this. And ocean currents actually take a slightly different path than the winds, although they're all influenced, of course, by the wind. And so then it gets really complicated when you start talking about sailing around the world. I want to tell you a little bit more about sailing and flying because I think it helps with understanding the global winds. We said that there's not a lot of wind at the equator. And that's because the air is rising up there and it's more like at the center of the low pressure instead of being influenced by the, the heavier turning around the low pressure. So at the equator, a lot of times ships that were sailing near there would almost get stuck where there was no wind. Does anyone know what that's called when there's almost no wind for days and days and a ship is just stuck there? Yeah, Philip. Horse latitudes. Okay, that's the other one. So at the equator, it's called the doldrums. And then if you go up higher between 30 degrees north and 60 degrees north, the same thing happens again because it's where the air is rising in between the, the polar cell and the feral cell. And there could be very little wind on the ocean. And that one is called the horse latitudes. Does anyone know why it is called the horse latitudes? What is that with these names? But um, yeah, I'm interested in knowing. <laughs> Thanks, Destiny J. I love it. So the horse latitudes, this is not a nice thought, but the horse latitudes are where the ships would get stuck. And in order to make the ships lighter, unfortunately, they would have to throw their horses overboard. That was one of the tricks that they would try to use to lighten up the ship and get out of there. That's really a sad story, actually. But that is why it's called the horse latitudes. Okay, I have one other interesting correlation, and then we're pretty much at the end of our conversation on global winds. This also influences where the tropics are and rainforests and things like that. In the low-pressure area at the equator, 
there is a lot of rain because the air is rising up with moisture in it. And as it cools off, it can't hold the moisture. And so it rains a lot. Now, this is bad if you're flying across it in a plane. It's called the intertropical convergence zone. And there can be some really bad weather as you're crossing the equator. But what does that do to the ground more or less below the equator? What type of climates would you get on the ground below the equator? Enrique, I know you know this one. Yeah, so pretty much here in Brazil, close to the Ecuador line, you have the main portion of the Amazon rainforest. So it's a really rich environment because of the rains and all that stuff that we just spoke about. Below that, you start to have some some desert areas known as um, Cerrado, which is a transition area. And sometimes we have a sort of desert in the northeast on lower latitudes compared to to the equator. Exactly. So right around the equator, that's where you can get rainforests. But then once the air has risen up and lost all its moisture, it's actually quite dry. And so as it sinks again, now you've got this really dry air, and that's going to create the desert, which is essentially below or south of the rainforest. And then again, in the northern latitudes, you are going to have some more dry air also, like in like the you know Mexico regions, India, that kind of thing. And then, although I have to think about that, yeah, I think I'm still correct. No, then you have then you would have another rainforest area, um, both in, for example, in Central America, that's part of the transition area moving to to Mexico, and here in South America, close to the Capricorn Tropic, you have another rainforest because pretty much the the environment starts to to become richer again. Yeah. So on both sides of the equator, so it starts being lush and green toward the middle, and then it goes to desert, and then it goes back to more like lush forests again. And then the poles are technically considered to be quite dry. You don't think of those as deserts because they're cold, but they're almost like a desert because they're so dry. That is great. And Enrique, I love how this is all coming together, especially with this international conversation. So that is how you get these different climates in the world. And that is why we say that meteorology, well, is just so complex. If you could start to try to think about it in three dimensions, I mean, the algorithms that meteorologists use are based on fluid dynamics. And there are just so many different variables. And it's just crazy. We have survived global winds. I think that might be the hardest conversation in all of meteorology. And remember that the winds don't always travel west to east. Sometimes they travel east to west. Also, yeah, just remember that there are some very interesting things as you travel around the world. If there are no further comments, I am going to go ahead and land the plane and close the room. We wish you all happy landings and we'll close in five, four, three, two, one. Thank you. This is Captain Teresa. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you were one of the people being recorded, I thank you. If you were one of the people that we edited out of this recording, I beg your forgiveness. There were many reasons that this episode may have been edited, including length, audio quality, and accuracy. We don't always have the right answers. 
I ask you to view this as entertainment and not as a replacement for formal instruction or advice. If you want to send constructive feedback or if you have questions, feel free to contact us through our website, landingswithaflare.com. You can view announcements on our Instagram account, landingswithaflare. You can also join our live conversations on Clubhouse in the Club Pilot Flight Training. If you got value out of this podcast, please consider subscribing, sharing, and leaving us a positive review. Wherever you are in the world, we wish you happy landings.